Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Lori Lightfoot left office as Chicago's second female mayor last year, but except for teaching a course at Harvard, she did not leave Chicago. And she has some big plans for some of Chicago's neighborhoods. We'll talk about those and more this weekend. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. My guest this weekend is indeed Chicago's immediate past mayor, Lori Lightfoot. In this Black History Month, it's safe to say she made African-American history in more ways than one. She was not only the first black woman to run the city, but the first openly gay person to do so as well. She led the city through the COVID-19 pandemic, financial upheaval and the beginnings of the migrant crisis. And she made equity the lens through which city departments viewed just about all of what they do. Well, since leaving office, she became a senior leadership fellow at Harvard. She taught a course at the Chan School of Public Health. And a few weeks ago, Lori Lightfoot launched a new effort as founder of the Chicago Vibrant Neighborhoods Collective. I'll let her tell you uh, all about what that is, but it's probably fair to say it's something in the realm of her uh, well-known uh, as mayor, uh, Invest Southwest initiative. So, uh, Lori Lightfoot, welcome back. It's always a pleasure, Craig. Thank you for having me. Well, it is a pleasure on our end, too. Now, did I get it right about your newest endeavor? Though This isn't exactly about funding. It's more about skills. Well, it's it's a little of both, I would say. One thing um, that we learned 
um, well through my time in office is you've got to actually operationalize equity. It can't just be this quaint notion. It can't be anything that you give speeches about, but you've got to demonstrate it in concrete, tangible ways. And you've got to focus on outcomes. So we did a lot of work. Um, and particularly through COVID, but even thereafter, working with community-based organizations that are really in many ways the heartbeat of local neighborhoods. And they may be one of the primary assets. And whether they're doing work uh, to support safe spaces for young people in their out-of-school time, working with uh, seniors, um, working with returning residents or <clears throat> doing intervention work, uh, for people who are suffering from uh, substance abuse uh, disorders. The list is long, but what we know is they are vital to the vibrancy of neighborhoods. And the goal of <clears throat> Chicago Vibrant, <clears throat> excuse me, Chicago Vibrant Neighborhoods Collective <clears throat> is to help these organizations um, who are on the front lines doing the Lord's work every day really um, have the internal um, infrastructure they need for sustainability. Now, not every neighborhood organization wants to grow bigger and bigger and bigger, and we understand and are respectful of that, but helping them with their back office functions, everything from budgeting and finance, marketing, um, HR, data and data analytics so they can measure impact and better tell their stories. These are the things that we know are essential for organizations to be vibrant, and strong for the long haul. And so we are assembling um, a, a cohort of uh, consultants that will work with these organizations just as they do for uh, for profit clients, embed themselves in the organizations, um, identify areas um, of strength, identify challenges, and then work with the organization uh, to improve outcomes and strengthen their internal infrastructure. We're very, very excited about the possibilities for this work. Are there that many groups out there that don't have a, a real facility for handling the, the the business part of their missions? Well, look, there's never been kind of a landscape survey, so I can't give you a specific list. But certainly what I know from my work prior to being a mayor, during the work that our administration did, working hand in glove with these vital uh, community-based organizations, and frankly, the research that we've done since, the answer is yes, yes, yes. Hmm. Um, and you you mentioned, obviously, not all uh, groups want to get bigger, um, but some some do and some i would guess don't know that they could be or should be bigger um how do you you know what good does building capacity as as it's often called um what good does that do groups even beyond serving a few more people well it makes sure that they are there for the long haul um, it gives them um, the ability uh, to not be lurching from crisis to crisis. It gives them staying power. You know, for example, we've seen many organizations that have longstanding leadership, an executive director or a president who decides to retire or move or um, encounter some personal difficulty that doesn't allow them to continue um, serving. And then the organization collapses. We've seen circumstances uh, where, um, you know, now in the new funding world, um, funders want to know 
How how many people have you served and in what capacity? Who are they? How do you um, determine that you're actually making progress? If you don't have a data system and data analytics um, in place, you can't tell that story. Um, people scrambling uh, from one revenue source to the, to the other, not having stable finances. The list is long, and these are all just stories that we've heard from the organizations themselves who have really, I think, embraced this concept and are anxious for us to get to work. Um, and going from one uh, uh, side of this to the other, uh, obviously there are a lot of organizations that could use this help. Yeah. How do you uh, choose among them? And and frankly, how do you find them? Or are they or are they finding you? Um, well, they're knocking down our door. <laughs> we've had we've had people apply when there's not a formal application process yet. So I don't think we're going to have any shortage of people who are going to be interested um, in help and having us help them. But really, it won't surprise you or your listeners that we're going to do our work with an equity lens. Um, that has always been my north star, and will continue to be as I uh, venture into this work. We are really uh, focused on um, areas of the city um, that have the most need. Um, we are looking and surveying, and not surprisingly, some of the Invest Southwest communities, but going beyond that, the west side, uh, south side writ large, southwest side, southeast side, um, areas of the city where we really feel like we're not going to be redundant in the work that we're doing. Because to be clear, there's a lot of other organizations that are out there that are doing similar kind of work. We want to be a value add. We want to supplement uh, what's already in place uh, in neighborhoods that continue uh, to have these needs and where organizations are doing great work, but need that extra um, help and support. Well, and as you as you say, there are other organizations. United Way, I know, does does this uh, for uh, some of its uh, partner organizations. Chicago Urban League does it, uh, giving technical assistance. Um, first off, how do you coordinate to make sure that your efforts aren't either duplicating or uh, it, and that there is coordination among the other players out there? Well, I, one is you got to just make sure that you're talking to folks. We're doing uh, ongoing networking uh, with a lot of different organizations of various sizes across the geography of Chicago. Uh, we want to make sure uh, that we know who's out there and that they know that we're out there and that to the extent that there's opportunities for collaboration, um, we're very excited uh, about that. We um, we're, have been on calls really nonstop since we uh, formally launched uh, with organizations that want to know what we're about, how they can add value, and what are the opportunities uh, for collaboration. So, so far, so good, but the conversations um, have to keep going. Are you finding that there are different needs uh, in different areas? That that is it, is it a geographic thing um, where some kind of help is needed one place and other kinds of help is needed others? Well, it's not just a it's not just a geographic need. It's organization by organization need. One of the real, I think, strengths that we bring to this process is tailoring a set of supports based upon what individual clients tell us that they need. And then, uh, obviously, as our work advances, 
what we want to look for is ways in which on a geographic neighborhood by neighborhood uh, basis really build synergies between the different groups that are working in that particular geography, A, so they know each other, and then look for opportunities to collaborate. Maybe it's on shared services and some of the back office functioning. Maybe they um, do joint programming uh, opportunities, but also maybe uh, they go after uh, grant funds uh, together as a group to help strengthen a particular neighborhood, a particular block geography. So I just think the possibilities for collaboration are really limitless. And we just were excited about rolling up our sleeves um, and getting in and doing the work. How much are you finding that the community-based organizations want to work with each other? Uh, you know, I've I've heard of cases where, um, in similar kinds of efforts, it turns out that the groups really liked working with each other, and uh, and found that the most valuable thing. Uh, what are you seeing? As and admittedly, this is just getting started. Uh, well, what I know from my past experiences. Um, Groups don't know what they don't know. And, and amazingly, um, even in the same neighborhood and the same couple block radius, folks are so busy doing the work, have their head down with the people that are coming to their door every day uh, with needs for services that they're not focused on and, and frankly don't have the luxury of time to focus on what's happening in the surrounding area. We want to help them break down some of those silos to see each other and look for these uh, opportunities. And, and you know, what you alluded to is <clears throat> not everybody is going to view their neighbor as their friend, but we're, our, I think, on balance, what I know from my own experience, and I think what we will see is that there's going to be a lot of um, excitement about the opportunity just to be engaged in conversation with people who are doing similar kinds of work in the same spaces um, so that they can be a support uh, for each other. This is hard work. You're on the front lines. The cavalry is not coming to save you. And, and many of these organizations have been at hard at work <clears throat> nonstop through the pandemic. And they're facing the same kind of challenges that for-profit businesses are uh, with shortages in personnel, burnout, <clears throat> the other kinds of things that we know and have been <clears throat> reported on in a for-profit world the nonprofit business, I'm borrowing a term that I got from <clears throat> the great leader of uh, the YMCA, uh, Dory McWhorter, these are businesses. They pay people. Um, they've got to meet payroll. They order goods and services. They're delivering um, services to uh, their uh, constituents and their clients. And they're not exactly, obviously, like for-profit businesses. <clears throat> but the things that we want to help them with are very, very similar and we want to make sure that they got the support that they need to be able to flourish. And I'm I'm reminded of the uh, the development that's going on in Bronzeville. And uh, when I was this was during your 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 term, uh, where the uh, the Bronzeville winery people were uh, in some ways surprised, but also thrilled that it seemed like other projects that were going on in the area. We're coming to support them and asking yes. for them their help, and that it it became kind of a a, a community thing. And I, I I I'm wondering if you're not hoping to see that kind of uh, thing happening everywhere. A a absolutely. I, I just you know the 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 operating thesis here is there are a couple of paths to create vibrant, strong, safe 
neighborhoods. And one of those paths absolutely runs through community-based organizations like the one that we're hoping uh, to be able to serve. So yes, if that happens, um, that will be a dream come true. And, and one little uh, coda, if I can, to the Bronzeville Winery, they're doing really, really well and recently learned um, that they are going to get a concession at O'Hare Airport, which is a very big deal. <laughs> These are two people who are tremendous. Um, they put their heart and soul into their business. Um, I was very happy to be a small part of helping them uh, be able to open up, but they've taken that opportunity and are doing incredible things with it. And a concession at O'Hare is going to inure to their benefit and their employees' benefits for years to come. Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, getting down there myself. But let's—we've been mostly talking about demand. Uh, the 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 people who need this help. Talk to me a little bit about supply, about how many partners you have and 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 need in order to do this at the at the level that you want to do it. Well, we're we're going to start out slow intentionally. Um, because I'm sure there's a lot that we're going to learn as we really get into the work. But we are very much interested in uh, professionals, um, people who want to volunteer time and they're out of work time, uh, folks who maybe are retired or working part time and doing gig economy. And we can use um, budget and finance people, accounting people. Uh, we can use data uh, systems, data analytics. If you know a little bit about PR and marketing, you know anything about HR, um, uh, we're really focused on board development um, and all the things that the nuts and bolts that organizations need to be able to flourish. If you are a professional that has that skill, please contact us. Go to shy, um, v -N -C. That's shyvnc.org. We could use your help. Okay, good to know. Uh, you are listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. I'm Craig Delamore. My guest is attorney and former Chicago mayor, Lori Lightfoot. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about what you have been doing since you uh, uh, left office. Uh, obviously, you spent time at Harvard, but uh, and, and what, what was that about? And, and how, did you, how did you find that? Well, I had the benefit of um, uh, being a fellow um, at the public health school um, and teaching a class on, not surprisingly, um, public health leadership through through a crisis, um, something I know a little bit about. Um, it was a fabulous experience. Um, the Chan School is all graduate students, um, which um, was, a, was great because they were there, because they wanted to be there, a lot of passion. I had about a third of my class were international students, so people who really come from every corner of the globe and are going to go back eventually to their home countries and take the learning from the U.S. and from the Chan School back with them to help strengthen public health um, systems and be advocates for public health in their in their home countries. But it was just a tremendous experience and then got the opportunity um, to be um, in spaces across uh, the university, not surprisingly, not surprisingly, uh, the Kennedy School um, and the Institute of Politics there. Um, I did a class with the um, School of Design, the Divinity School, the dentist, um, uh, dent uh, dentistry school. So I really Did kind we, of uh, the was on the school? circuit. Yes, yes, because public health and dentistry go hand in hand. 
it's a big, big uh, challenge. So yes, I um, spoke to uh, a full house of, uh, of dentistry uh, students and online and had a great conversation uh, with them. Uh, something that I should have asked while we were still talking about the vibrant neighborhoods, uh, how does all of this dovetail with anything the city is doing are you do you are do you have contact with uh the city uh, to make sure again that there's collaboration and or coordination well i want to say if steve berlin the executive director of the ethics board is listening i'm abiding by uh, my uh, restrictions i can't have direct contact with um, the city or anything that I was involved in uh, for a year, and I haven't sought a waiver um, or needed one, frankly. But it, it look, it really definitely builds on the work that we did over uh, over four years' time, and so many people um, reached out um, as I was leaving, reached out um, after I was gone, and more recently, as we've announced this initiative, we created, I think, a lot of synergy among neighborhood organizations, neighborhood leaders, um, that I hope continues um, in full force to this day. But we certainly whetted the appetites, I think, of folks of what true uh, community engagement and empowerment um, could look like through the um, literally hundreds of millions of dollars uh, that we put back into uh, the community over and above uh, the Invest Southwest $2.2 billion. And we just wanna continue um, collaborating with our, our friends and colleagues um, in the not-for-profit sector. Um, I, I am going to try and uh, call on your uh, your status as a uh, strong sports fan to uh, <laughs> see if you're uh, willing to talk about some conversations that are underway now that uh, started while you were still mayor. What do you make of uh, how new sports stadiums in or out of Chicago uh, that the talk about them has just mushroomed yeah. in the last in in recent months. Well, look, I, I have always thought that the Chicago Bears need to be in Chicago. So I'm gratified to see, uh, at least from what I read in the papers, um, that the conversation has shifted back to um, the Chicago Bears staying in Chicago. I think that's a really good, healthy thing. I think there's plenty of uh, opportunities for the Bears as we um, try to uh, persuade them. And hopefully um, those conversations will be fruitful. The devil's always in the details. And the the long pole in this tent, if I if I can, is going to be where's the money coming from. And, and it's the same uh, with the White Sox. Um, you know, God bless the folks that um, own the property at the 78. The, uh, the renderings look great, but fundamentally the deal between the White Sox and the state organization that runs the field and the surrounding parking lots, that's gotta be, I think, fundamentally re-examined. And I actually love guaranteed rate uh, field. I think it's a great uh, venue. Um, I'm not so sure about this idea of building a brand new stadium from scratch because then it means what do you do with that other asset? But I think there's gotta be a serious conversation sooner rather than later. I'm assuming there is between White Sox leadership, um, business folks um, and the state government and the city about what makes the most sense for the future of the White Sox franchise. Um, first and foremost, let's do everything we can to keep them um, in Chicago and frankly on the South, south side. 
Um, but I think there's got to be a real serious conversation about whether it makes sense to abandon the stadium that's not that old, um, frankly, is in good shape. Um, but, you know, the White Sox are a business. They deserve to maximize their revenues. I'm a big, big fan of, of Jerry Reinsdorf. And obviously, everybody knows that I'm a longstanding White Sox fan. So I want to see um, something in place that um, keeps the White Sox vibrant from an economic standpoint, keeps them in the Chicago, and in particular, keeps them on the South side. So I think a lot of discussions there, and I've made no secret to um, to all, and particularly to uh, the ownership of the uh, White Sox, I'm here to help in any way that I can. Yeah, and I, I know, I'm, I'm sure that the uh, the alder person of the uh, 11th Ward, where uh, Guaranteed Rate Field is, uh, is very interested in how this goes, because as you point out, that's that is an economic driver for that Absolutely. area and if nothing happens to it uh, you know if it it's i i suppose that there can't be a situation where it's just abandoned or torn down but then again you never know with these kinds of sports franchises well well look if, if you look at where guaranteed field is situated in some ways it couldn't be better You've got um, three train lines right there. You've got the green line, you've got Metra, <clears throat> and you've got the red line. Then you've got, obviously, um, it's situated right on um, a freeway where you can come from any parts in the region uh, to get there. You've got um, the, the IIT campus just on the other side of the expressway. And I think they would love to be in a conversation about kind of creating a campus um, for uh, the White Sox um, with the White Sox in that area. And truly, it could be the economic engine of that part of the South Side, because there's really nothing else there that would compete with them. Make it a year-round destination. Look at other examples um, across the country. And dare I say, as a, a long-suffering Bears <laughs> fan, <laughs> look at what um, the owner's of uh, the the Packers have done at Lambeau Field, just as one example. I just think the possibilities are endless, um, and, and around the existing footprint of Guaranteed Rate Field, um, I think there's a lot of other people that would be interested in partnering. Um, look, the Chicago Fire. Um, I think they're happy in Soldier Field, but I think it's no secret that ultimately they'd love to see a soccer-specific stadium. Could that be something that's done with a lot of the vacant land in that area of the south side? Now, I'm going to get myself in trouble if I talk um, any more about it, but clearly I think there's a need for folks to sit down, have a conversation, and really start visioning about <clears throat> what the possibilities are for the footprint around the existing guaranteed rate stadium. Uh, I do want to touch on migrants a little bit, and I'm not going to ask you about uh, um, Mayor Johnson's handling of migrant shelters and such, unless you want to weigh in. Um, but I, I know you're you're reluctant yes. to do that. Uh, yes, but I do want to ask about the Biden administration and the state and mayors from around the country are asking for immigration reform at the border and federal assistance. Um, as a mayor who was one of those, who would have been one of those mayors, uh, what what is your hope for the kind of the kind of support that the city needs to get through this? 
Look, I I'll tell you what my conversations were nonstop from um, early on when the first buses came to Chicago in late August of 22. <clears throat> Number one, no city is equipped to handle a migrant crisis. We're just not. That's And, and particularly northern cities um, that don't have that kind of experience of people literally coming from the border with massive needs. No city is set up to handle that. Um, but the, the thing that I think would alleviate a lot of the pressures is for the, these people are coming into the country legally. I think that's something that gets lost in the heated rhetoric. All these asylum seekers are paroled into the country. That's the formal legal term, legally. My view, and I was not shy about expressing this to who whatever would listen, I pigeonholed the Secretary of Labor, the Secretary of DHS, the folks in the White House, um, on and on and on, our, our federal delegation, they must have the ability to work. And the work permits have to be for everyone that's getting a, um, paroled into the country as asylum seekers, not just for a few. Um, what has happened is things have been done in a piecemeal fashion. They've, hap, hap, they've helped as far as they've gone, but they've been limited in scope. What needs to happen is a full scale, everybody who came since you know sometime in 22, um, because they started coming, going to New York and DC much earlier than they came to Chicago. They need to have the ability to work, not just the Venezuelans who came after a certain date. That's an important step because the challenge is when people don't aren't able to work, they come into your city, they have great needs for food, clothing and shelter, healthcare. They become wards of the city and the city's not set up for that. This, you set up asylum, a, a shelter system, but the, the, the theory is that there's outflow. When people can't work and earn a living and pay for their basic needs, like food, clothing, and shelter, they, they don't have an ability to leave. And that just makes the shelter system grow and grow and grow. When I left office, the monthly burn rate for the shelter system was about 20, 25 million a month. And the largest expense was the 24 hour services that were needed to be provided to uh, the migrants in our shelter system. I'm sure the burn rate is much higher now because there's many more people that have come since mid-May to um, when we're talking now in early uh, February of 2024. Oh, we are out of time, but I do want to thank former Mayor Lori Lightfoot for spending this time with us. To our listeners, if you'd like a copy of this program or just to hear it again, please visit our website, wbbmnewsradio.com. There's a link on the homepage, and you can also find our podcast on odyssey.com. We'll be back next week with another edition of At Issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 105.9 WBBM. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 